All right, well, good morning, church. Kind of clear the way here. Please turn with me while I'm clearing this off in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges, chapter 17. This is our last week in the book of Judges. So go ahead and turn there with me, and we'll be finishing off Judges this week. I know literally nobody cares about this but me, but this was our first time we've ever gone through a whole sermon series on schedule. So how about that? Huh? Pretty good. Yeah. Thank you to uh, Pastor David for preaching last week. I felt a little bit bad assigning him three chapters to cover last week, but he did a fantastic job talking us through the life of Samson. And I felt less bad because I'm covering five chapters myself this morning, so he couldn't complain too much. But he did an awesome job showing us the life of Samson and pointing us to the cross through Samson. And so thank you so much, Pastor David, for that last week. And because we have five chapters uh, to cover this morning, as well as a hot lunch waiting for us afterwards, we better dive right in. So please pray with me, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we're just so grateful to be here, to be together, as we hear the voices of your church ringing out, Lord. You are just so worthy, and we just think forward to the day when every nation, tribe, and tongue will be around your throne singing, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. So God, tune our hearts to that, tune our lives to that reality that is coming. One day Jesus is coming back. It's really going to happen. So Lord, as we preach your word, as we look to your word for guidance, it's not just a bunch of tips on how to live our lives, God. This is the story that you are unfolding from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation through fall to redemption and ultimately restoration, God. So help us to see our place in that unfolding story. God, help us to see in Judges chapter 17 through the end here that you are good, that you are on the throne, you are in control, Lord. Just help us, just bind our hearts to that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you're probably wondering a little bit how this whole uh, church on the farm thing came to be. And uh, the truth is that back in, I don't know, May or June of 2020, back when coronavirus was still uh, fresh and new and we were still shut down, uh, not meeting together. I think it was the McCorkle's Life Group, or there were some people who were meeting here who were live streaming the services uh, and kind of gathering in here together. And there was one Sunday, Emily and Owen came, and I was preaching, and then I came afterwards. And, and it's kind of started out as one of these, I don't remember if Shane said it to me or I said it to him, but it was kind of what, you know, you say something and you're like half joking, but half serious, and you just want to gauge the reaction. So somebody said to somebody else, like, well, what if we had the whole church out here? And it's kind of like, yeah. And then I think later on, I texted him and I said, wait, were you serious about that? Like, is that something that could really happen? And we're like, we think so. So we talked more and more about it. And then we're trying to find a date. And he was like, well, give Brittany at least like a week after we've had our baby before we do this. And so, um, so we did that. And now we're here on August 1st. And we've just been, like I said, just super excited about it. We've had it on the calendar now for a while. And so there's kind of been like this soup, this like excitement for me as I've looked at our calendar of church on the farm, it's going to be a lot of fun. But then at the same time, when I've looked at our, our preaching calendar of the passages we're going to go through, uh, Judges chapter 17 to 21 has kind of been like looming on the opposite end 
of the spectrum. It's a little bit like a slow motion car crash. I don't know if you, like, there was one time I was in high school and uh, there was like ice all over the parking lot and we were leaving the school and, and my car was just stuck spinning its wheels and another car was coming at, at me at like five miles an hour, but there, he was braking and it wasn't doing anything and we're just kind of looking at each other like square in the eye like, well, we're about to have a crash here in just a minute and then we crashed. And that's kind of how I felt a little bit looking to this passage on this particular day. Like if you had, say, a, a fantasy draft of all passages in scripture that make you feel good, that would like, you know, build morale at a, at a Sunday like this, this would probably be the very last pick, at least like one of the very last picks. This passage this morning is, um, it's depressing. It's, uh, it's got some awful things in it. Now, I've been talking a lot about this stock market ticker of judges, right? It starts up here, ends down there, up and down, up and down. We are, we are flatlining this morning. We are bottoming out. Things get as bad as they can possibly get. And here we are at Church on the Farm in Judges chapter 17 to 21. And so I've been praying a lot about this. And you know what? I just think we got to trust that this is exactly where the Lord wants us to be this morning. And there's no passages of scripture that are there by accident. There are no passages of scripture that are that do not exist for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every single passage of scripture is to that end. And so we are going to trust the Lord this morning that he has something good in store for us, even in the middle of a, a kind of dark and depressing passage. Up until now, in the book of Judges, it's gone in a chronological order, and it's traced out the time of the period of the judges, right? The people that God did raise up, or sometimes didn't raise up, to deliver Israel. But we've been tracking the leaders, like the story of Judges has moved through the story of the leaders. And we've seen a cycle. In fact, I have a trivia question. Whoever answers this question gets to get lunch, go through the buffet line first. So there's high stakes here, okay? What's the cycle? We don't have it on the screen right now. What's the cycle? Christian? She's got it. All right, you're going through the line first. Good job, Christian. All right. Rebel, repent, repeat. We've seen this cycle all through. Okay, I'll give one more person a chance to go second in the line. This is a harder question, actually. You can look at your Bibles if you want, but who is the who was the first judge that we studied in the book of Judges? Judge? Nope. <laughs> Good try, Andy. Who's got it? You got it? What's that? Not Judah, no. Starts with an O. Othniel, who said that? All right, Naomi, you're number two through the line. Very good. It helps. It pays to be up front. That's what I've been telling you guys. It's good to sit up front. You get uh, some perks sometimes. So we started with Othniel. Okay, I'll give one more person a chance to do this. Who is an easier one? Somebody in the back. Who was the left-handed deliverer? Who said that? David. <laughs> All right, Pastor David, you're going through the line third, I guess. <laughs> Good job, David. So we saw Othniel, right? God raised up Othniel after Israel had chased after these false gods. And then they went right back into repeating the idolatry. So God raised up Ehud, the left-handed deliverer who uh, killed fat King Eglon, right? Those, you know, all that gross stuff happened. And then there was Deborah and Barak 
And uh, somebody that my uncle, who's a pastor, who had been watching some of these sermons, said that I've been mispronouncing this whole time. I've been calling her Jail. It's Jael, apparently. So the apologies, apologies for all that. But she's the one who put the tent peg right through his skull. And uh, we saw that. And then we saw it with Gideon. And then we saw Abimelech, who did this kingdom-wide search. Remember him? He's saying, telling his relatives, kingdom-wide search. Who's going to be the next person to deliver Israel? Well, it's going to be the guy staring right back at me at the mirror. Abimelech saw fit for himself to be raised up as the next deliverer. And then Jephthah, remember, remember his tragic vow that he made, and he accidentally made a vow that would end up in sacrificing his own daughter. And then last week, we got to Samson who Pastor David, I love how you described him as this uh, incredible Hulk, who you just get angry and point him in one direction and he would just go and, uh, and break a bunch of stuff. I like that a lot. And what the author of the book of Judges has been doing here, he's been brilliantly painting this picture of Israel descending into more and more chaos and debauchery and immorality and idolatry. So through each cycle, we've been getting lower and lower and lower and lower here. And after Samson, the like storyline in terms of the chronological story of Judges is actually over. So we're not we're no longer going in chronological order. Judges 17 through 21 takes a little bit of a different tactic in telling the story. It's kind of in some way like the deleted scenes of the book of Judges. So uh, for some of you younger people, you'll be blown away to know that people used to watch movies on things called DVDs, and what you do, you put it in the DVD player, and you could click on the menu, and there was something that would say, I don't know, bonus content, and then there was these deleted scenes, right? Things that they shot for the movie or the show, but they didn't actually end up making it. I don't know, they, you probably watch those on YouTube now or something, but the, like, the point is, like you had the whole story, and then you had this other things that you would just watch kind of out of order, but they would kind of give a little bit more context, a little bit more of a, a texture, if you will, to what was happening in the story. And so the, the, this is what is happening in Judges chapter 17 through 21. You have this kind of like deleted scenes, and what the author's doing here is giving us more background info and more context for what is going on. So we have two distinct stories that we're going to see this morning. Chapters 17 through 18 are one story, and chapters 19 through 21 are another story. And he wants us to see something very clearly, right? He didn't just throw these things in at the end just because he'd already written the material and he had to stick it somewhere. He wanted us to see something very clearly here. He wants us to see simply that things were really, really, really bad. Like, as in, he's kind of like he's saying, like, you thought you knew how bad some of these things were as you were reading the book of Judges, but guess what? Wait till you get a load of some of the other stuff that was going on. Like, this things make Samson look like a Boy Scout. Like, you thought that things were bad, but things were actually even way worse than thought. So that's our two stories this morning are kind of going back in time. They're not focusing on any leaders. They're just telling the stories of some people who did some terrible things. And we have this refrain in verse 6. So if you have in your Bibles, look at verse 6 of chapter 17. This refrain is repeated several times in these chapters. Look at it with me. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own Eyes. In fact, I'm going to have you, if you have it in front of you, read that with me. That's a really key point. Let's read that together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, and here's the point this morning, church. Here's why we actually really need these chapters in Judges. As horrific as they may be, this is the point. We need a king. We need a king. Pastor Mike, what was the point of your sermon this morning? That's it. We need a king. Four words. Desperately. Don't we? By nature, we want to rule over our own lives. We want to be the king. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And what these stories do is they tell us what goes wrong when we are our own rulers. Things always go wrong when you decide to be your own ruler in your life. Who has a story like that? Everybody. Is it just me? No, we all do, right? When you decide to take charge, when you decide to be in control, when you decide you don't need a king because you're going to do what's right in your own eyes, things always go really, really wrong. We need a king. Amen? Amen. All right, let's look at these stories now in chapters 17 through 21. We start with the story of a man named Micah. And the author begins kind of by jumping us right into the middle of a somewhat awkward conversation that Micah is having with his mom. And so we see Micah say something to the effect of, hey, mom, you remember those 200 pieces of silver that were stolen from you? Yeah. You know the one that you, you called a curse from heaven down upon whoever stole that, those 200 pieces of silver from you, which was just an exorbitant amount of money. Remember when you called that curse upon the person who stole all that silver? Mom, that, that was me. I, I, uh, I did it. I stole the silver from you. You see, curses were a big deal back then when he called the curse down on the person who uh, stole the silver. And so what did she do? Well, she realized, kind of like, oh my goodness, I called a curse upon my own son. This is not good. So she immediately tries to reverse this curse by calling a blessing on him. And then here's what she does is she essentially tries to bribe God by not fulfilling that curse, by offering the silver that she had that was returned to her to make false gods out of this silver. So she's trying to bribe the one true God by making false idols out of this silver. And and again, this reminds me a little bit of when Jephthah promised God a human sacrifice. Remember that? Jephthah, he's told God, if I'm successful in battle, I'll give you a human sacrifice. You just think, How could Jephthah think that God wants that, right? It's the same thing here. How could Micah's mom think that God would be pleased with her making false idols? And the answer is simply that things had fallen that far. Things had gotten that bad. And so they make these idols, and then wouldn't you know, as luck would have it, a Levite walks by, and the priests in Israel were from the tribe of Levi. And so This was perfect for Micah because Micah had this new temple with all these shiny new false gods and he just happened to need a priest to live in that temple. How perfect is that? So he gives this Levite a job offer and this Levite, the ones who were supposed to be the true priest to God, accepts this job offer of being a priest in this temple, bootleg temple that Micah had made with these false gods. And again, you just think, how could he do that. I was trying to think of an equivalent for this. I really couldn't, but I thought maybe if like 
one of my seminary buddies decided after he graduated seminary, rather than pastoring a church, if he said, I'm going to go out to Vegas and work in a wedding chapel and like marry people in a Vegas wedding chapel. Like, I'm just going to bless people's bad decisions all day, every day. Like, that's going to be how I use my call from the Lord. Like, that kind of gets us there a little bit. It's not good. But Micah's just thrilled with this whole thing. He can't believe he's got himself now. First, he was just a common thief, but now he's got himself a temple and he's got himself a priest. If we look at verse 12. Micah ordained the Levite, whatever that means, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. How clueless could you be? Now I know God's going to smile on me and give me success because I've got a Levite as a priest. Really, Micah? You really think that you're going to be blessed? You really think the Lord's going to be happy with this little setup that you have here? Here's a spoiler alert. He's not going to be happy with that. Deuteronomy, if he knew his Bible, he would know that Deuteronomy 27.15 said, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. That's literally exactly what he did. Deuteronomy 27.15 doesn't say that he's blessed. He says that he's cursed, but Micah is oblivious to it. And you know what? Here's the thing, as much as we can... Uh, get frustrated with Micah here, is that the same things can happen to us. There's a commentator named Dale Davis, and I don't think he's the same guy as the former Indiana Pacer, Dale Davis. Was there an old Pacer named Dale Davis? Yes. I don't think it's the same guy, but uh, this is what he said. He said, Micah is living proof, listen to this, that it is possible to be set on a course of religious faith and or ministry it's possible to be set on a course of faith or ministry which exudes success in every respect and yet still rests under the curse of God's judgment. That is so important for us to understand, church. He says, Micah's proof that you can be on a path in your faith or in your ministry that has every single appearance of being successful, every single appearance of bearing fruit, every single appearance of being blessed, and yet still rests under the curse of God's judgment. I don't know if any of you have been listening to this podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is about Mark Driscoll's former church in Seattle. I don't know if any of you have heard that or not, but it's just been a, Christianity Today has been putting it out, and it's been a fascinating case study about this church that grew from nothing to like 50,000 people extremely quickly and then, and then completely disappeared just about overnight. And what fascinates me hearing this podcast is just to think about, like to put myself in the shoes of the people who were a part of that church. When it grew from a church plant, from nothing to 50,000 people, people being baptized like you wouldn't believe, right? And really the Lord even doing some real work in their lives. And yet it was built on sinking sand, it was built on the sinking sand of, of bad theology in many ways and of bad character. And it eventually came tumbling down. And I'm not saying this to like point fingers at a certain church. What I'm saying this is that it's been a fascinating example of what can happen if you're not building on a solid foundation of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we got to be careful that we don't do that same thing, to be set on a course that exudes success in every respect, that everyone can look at us and say, wow, look how amazing things are going there. And yet, deep down, we're building on foundation of sink and sand. We don't want to be that, church. Amen? Amen? Amen. We need to be careful not to do the same. And we're not doing that. We never want to be so arrogant to think that the same is going to happen to us. That's what Micah did. Well, moving on, chapter 18, we're introduced to this tribe of Israel called the Danites, and they're looking for a place to live. And so they send spies into the land where Micah lives. And so now these Danites are come across Micah's house, and they come across this priest, and they think, wow, this guy's got a pretty good setup here, and he's got a whole bunch of nice idols here, and wouldn't we like to have those things? And so what they do is they give the priest a better job offer. They say, what's it better for you to be just Micah's priest, or you want to be the whole tribe of Dan, the Danites' priest? And he says, well, actually, it sounds like that's a pretty good career move for me. And so he goes with the Danites, and they steal all of Micah's things, which is pretty ironic, because the whole way this whole thing started was that Micah stole the silver to begin with he's being robbed look at verse 27 but the people of dan took what micah had made and the priest who belonged to him and they came to laish a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire wow what an amazing tribe they stole these false gods and then they just beat up these quiet unsuspecting people who weren't giving anybody any problem and they burned their city and they took it from them. That's the first story. That's chapter 17 to 18. That's one of the things that the author wants to see. Look what was going on behind the scenes in Judges. Micah's mom makes these false idols out of the silver that Micah sold in return. So he hires a priest in the tribe of Danites, steal the priests and his false gods, and they go and kill a bunch of people. The end. Woohoo. Go team. Go Israel. You guys are just killing it out there. The story is bad, and it certainly shows how far Israel has fallen. And yet there's still kind of like, in the author's words, like there's a hint of humor in this, right? Like we're, we're kind of making fun of all these people. We're making fun of Micah. We're making fun of the priests. We're making fun of the Danites. Like, like there's a little bit of humor in this really dark story. But the second story, however, has absolutely no humor in it whatsoever. It is dark. It is horrific, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you here. There's another Levite. We never learn his name. This Levite takes a concubine for himself, not his wife. It takes a concubine, and she ends up cheating on him and moving in with her father. And so after a while, this Levite goes, and he tries to win her back, and he's successful in that. And eventually the two of them leave her father's house, and they're looking for a place to stay. So this Levite is worried about staying somewhere outside of Israel's territory, and so they keep traveling until they get to Gibeah, which is occupied by the tribe of Benjamin. So they're on the road, and they're just looking, as they're traveling home, they're looking for a place to stay, and they and uh, this Levite says, I don't want to stay outside Israel. There's too much bad things that, too many bad things that could happen to me there. So let's try to go with the tribe of Benjamin. And so they come to this place called Gibeah, and that would end up being a grave mistake. They can't find a new one that will take them in. They can't find a place to stay. And so they're getting ready to just sleep in the town square here in 
Gibeah until this elderly man from outside of the tribe of Benjamin warns them not to stay there, and he puts them up at his place. And so now we have this Levite and his concubine are staying with this elderly man in, Benjamin, in uh, Gibeah with the tribe of Benjamin. And we need to take a pause from Judges for a second, and we need to take a trip to, uh, of all places, Sodom and Gomorrah, not a great vacation place, but we need to take a trip to Sodom and Gomorrah for just a minute. In Genesis 19, there's a story about Sodom that we see illustrates just how bad things had gotten there. So in this story, in Genesis chapter 19, two angels visit Lot, and they spend the night at his house. You are probably familiar with the story. That while they're there, the men of Sodom gather around the house, and they demand that they bring these men, these angels that were visiting, they demand that they bring these men out to them so that they can sleep with them. And Lot begs them not to do that, and instead he says, why don't you take my two virgin daughters instead? It's awful, right? And, and what happens is that the angels that are staying there end up striking all the men blind. They're able to get away. And it's a horrific story, but it shows the depravity of Sodom at the time, that these visitors came to town, and all the men of the town just said, let us sleep with these men. Like, that's, that's what Sodom had become. And in Judges chapter 19, the same exact thing happens, except it's worse. It's the same thing that happens in Genesis 19. These men of Gibeah, they're the tribe of Benjamin. These are Israelites. They go to the old man's house and they demand to sleep with this Levite man. And the Levite instead sends them his concubine, the woman that he had just gone back to win back. But this time there's no angels to rescue them. And they abuse the concubine all night, and in the morning, they find her dead. The Levite is so angry that he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends the pieces throughout Israel to show what, was hap what happened. And then in chapter 20, Israel is clearly upset with Benjamin, and so they attract the, attack the tribe of Benjamin. They're literally, Israel is literally at war against itself right now. And then in chapter 21, they feel bad for the tribe of Benjamin because they don't have wives anymore to perpetuate the tribe. And so they go and they steal a bunch of women for the tribe of Benjamin to have wives again. And that's the end of Judges. All right, let's pray and then we'll have lunch. Just kidding. Judges ends with this reiteration of what we read in the beginning. Read it with me in Chapter 21, verse 25, it's the same exact thing. Look, that, Read that with me. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No kidding. You see why he said that now? It's an understatement, I would say. The author of Judges was certainly successful in getting across his point that things have gotten as bad as humanly possible. Why did they get so bad? Because there's no king. There's no king. We need a king. We are a people who need authority, right? Teachers, school's about to start, raise your hand. Teachers, teachers, you ever step out of your classroom for like, oh, two minutes, and then you come back in and it has descended to utter chaos, and you think, how did this just happen? I was gone for two minutes. Parents, you ever go, I don't know, take a shower, leave your kids playing together, come back, and the house is almost completely destroyed, right? How did this just happen? I barely left. Maybe that just happens in our house, I don't know. 
It's human nature in many ways, right? In the absence of any type of leadership, there is chaos. There have been a lot of political philosophies that have come down through the ages. Probably the dumbest is anarchy and just the fact that if we just leave people with no leader and just let people do what they want, everything will go great. That has never worked. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel needed a king, but here's the thing. Here's the point we can't miss. This is it. They didn't just need any king. They needed a king who was going to address their deepest need. Israel had a lot of problems. We've seen many of them in the book of Judges. They had a lot of problems, but their biggest problem was one that they could not fix on their own. Israel had a heart problem. Their biggest problem was not a military problem, right? Otherwise, he would have said there was no king in Israel, and so every nation triumphed over them. That wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem wasn't like economic, an economic problem. It doesn't say there was no king in Israel and so the people plunged into poverty. They didn't need a king for those reasons. Their biggest problem was a heart problem. There was no king in Israel, so everyone just did what they wanted. And when everyone does what they wanted, things get as bad as they possibly can. So what did God do? What did God do? What was the solution to this wicked and wandering and idol-worshiping people? What did God do? What would you have done if you were God, right? What would you have done if you were God and your chosen people, the people, you made this people a nation out of an elderly, childless couple, right? They were no people, and then they were a people. You made them a nation. You delivered them out of Egypt. You loved them enough to give them your law, to teach them how to relate to you and how to relate to one another. And so they know it. They have no excuse that they don't know what they're doing. They have the law. What would you do if this people that you've been faithful to over and over and over again, even when they were disobedient, what would you do when you saw your people doing the worst things imaginable? What did God do to Sodom in Genesis 19 after that story that we saw? He destroyed it, right? Completely wiped them out. And do you think he would have been justified to do the same to Israel here? Yes. Is that what God did? This is what blows me away about our God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even when Israel is at the absolute apex of their rebellion and the peak of their idolatry, what is God doing right then? Right when these stories are going on, what is God doing? He's planning their rescue. How do we know? The very next verse in your Bible. Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth and Boaz, who through God's providence would be the ancestors of David and ultimately Jesus Christ himself. When does that story happen? In the days when the judges ruled, when things are getting as bad as they possibly can, that is when God makes his plan 
who sent his son. That is our God. At the height of their rebellion, rather than destroying his people, God sets the plan in motion to send his son to die, to be the king that his people needed, to be the king that all nations needed to rule forever, to fix the problem that none of them could fix on their own because it was a heart problem, because they were dead in their sin. What an amazing God we serve. You needed a king, and God sent his son. Amen? I don't know what you think your biggest problem is right now here on this earth in this very moment, August 1st, 2021. But I do know what your biggest problem is. You need a king. You need a king. Your biggest problems aren't money problems or family problems or relationship problems or job problems or house problems or anything else, even though those may be like legitimate hardships. I'm not downplaying those things at all. Don't hear me say that. But deeper than that, beyond that, we need a king because in the absence of a king, we do what's right in our own eyes. And whenever we do that, we mess it up. Hopefully not to the level that we see Israel doing here. But in the absence of a good king who can fix our heart problem, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We need a holy king. We need a righteous king. We need a king who upheld the entire law so that you might be called the righteousness of God. People without a king are just doing what is right in their own eyes. And if that's you, praise God that he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't give up on you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't have a king this morning, let me tell you, you need a king. And there's only one man to be that king, to fix that hard problem that you have, and his name is Jesus, and you need to follow him starting today with your whole heart and with your whole life and repent of your sin and tell him, Jesus, I've messed this all up. I've tried to do this on my own. I've been living my whole life doing what's right in my own eyes. And look where it got me, God. I need you right now, today. Follow Jesus. Follow the king. If you don't know the king, follow the king. It's the best news I can give you. It's the most important thing I could tell you out here on the farm this morning is that you need This morning, we're going to celebrate our King by taking communion together, the Lord's Supper. And as we come and we gather the elements and we take this together, we are reminded of what it took for the King to save us. It wasn't just that He came, although amazing that it is on His own, that Jesus Christ left His throne in heaven to come as fully God and fully man to live a life here on earth. That's amazing on its own. But what's even more incredible is that in the apex of Israel's rebellion, God sent his son to die. The sacrifice needed to be made for our sin. And the king was that sacrifice. What kind of king sacrifices his life on behalf of a rebellious people? Jesus does that too. It's Jesus. He was that sacrifice. So the bread that we're about to eat represents his body that was broken for us on the cross. And the cup that we're going to drink together represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness 
of the sins. And so as we eat and drink together, I just pray that these elements are a sacred and joyful reminder that God doesn't leave you wandering to do what's right in your own eyes. That is grace. Some people want to say that the things that God imposes on your law are just tyranny. How could God have anything to say in your life? It's because when you do it on your own, it's, it's a disaster. It is God's grace that he allows us to live in the freedom of following him. And so these elements are a reminder that Jesus Christ himself died on the cross, poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. What an incredible truth for us to celebrate this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, in just a moment, you are going to be dismissed by row to come up and take the elements. So go up. There are pre-packaged already. So you just come up and grab one and uh, then you can return to your seat and then we'll eat and drink together. So the deacons uh, will be dismissing you by row. And uh, in just a few moments, I'll lead us in eating and drinking.